African-Americans make up one of the largest voting blocks in Chicago, which means many of us have taken the step to register to vote. But too many of us remain silent when it's time to make our voices heard. At a time when our conversations are as polarized as they've ever been, we must exercise our political power. Dear Black Voter, I'm Calmetta Coleman, Senior Vice President of External Affairs for the Chicago Urban League. Local and state elections matter. And if you're not voting with knowledge, you're not voting with power. Welcome to our six-part series on voter education. It's time you had a seat at the table. Pull up a chair. Your host, Doma T. Pongo. Thank you, Calmetta. I talked to Amara Inya, who has many titles, and all of them encompass breaking down the complexities of Illinois politics. We talk about a few key races, things to watch for in the November election, and what the results of the primary election tell us about the voting habits of different demographics. Let's get into it. Amara Inya is political consultant. Will that suffice, or are there other titles that I should add on to that? Uh, so there are a few public policy consultants community organizer, lawyer, just whatever, I guess, it sounds fitting. Well, that's, that's perfect, because <laughs> we're going to talk about all of that. We're going to talk about public policy. We're going to talk about organizing and how that plays into primary elections and how people organize and get out there and vote. So thank you for taking the time, uh, first of all. Uh, what did the primary election results? We're a few weeks out from the primary election. The dust has settled a bit. We've had a chance to look at some of the data. What do these results tell us about the way Illinoisans vote? Well, I mean, there are a couple of things. So one is just looking at overall voter turnout. Um, and this comes up every election, that it's not what uh, what is ideal, especially in a democracy, who's coming out to vote the number of registered voters versus those that actually vote on election day. Mm-hmm. So the numbers were not super exciting, although they weren't as bad as previous elections. I think there are a couple of demographics that were pulled out. So people looked at the millennial percentage of voters, and it was around 3% for, I believe it was 18 20 to 24-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And so that was pretty alarming. Alarming because when you think about where a lot of the action and enthusiasm is, a lot of that is housed within the millennial demographic. And so we have to figure out what to do to make sure that they're actually coming out to the polls. Um, the primary is really where most of the action happens. I mean, it determines who gets moves on to the general. And so we have to make sure that we're emphasizing the importance of the primary elections. But there wasn't anything that was super uh, different from voting patterns in the past. Yeah, and this year, what is it, 29% of the electorate came out for the primary elections. Four years ago, this time, that number was somewhere around 14%. Yes. Is that encouraging at all, or what do you think we can attribute that to, that growth? Well, I mean... I like to say the Dear Black Voter podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. That was instrumental. Right. Um, But it's it's part of it. It is voter education. It's A lot of it deals with the issues that will bring voters out. And a lot of it is also attributed to the candidates. Because if you have candidates that appeal to or resonate with voters, they are likely to get more enthusiastic support, meaning people coming out to the polls. So there's two levels. One is looking at what is the quality of candidates and the enthusiasm that they generate. And then the other is looking at what are the hot-button issues that can bring voters out. In this particular election cycle, we had a lot of 
pretty significant hot button issues. You had um, this property tax issue, which was a central piece in many different elections. And a lot of people who pay their property taxes, that's something that they care about. You also had some uh, referendum questions, particularly around legalizing marijuana. That's a big issue statewide. Mm -hmm. And so that might have attracted more people to come out and vote. Um, and there were some key races where they were pretty hotly contested. So that drives up uh, participation. We'll go into those races in a minute, but let's talk about some of the, those uh, referenda items uh, that typically get put on the ballot just to get people out, right? People want a chance to voice their opinion on legalizing marijuana. Uh, but it's a non-binding referendum, which means that no matter how people vote, it won't actually play out in the legislative process. Um, to that end, what do you think voters will, or how do you think lawmakers will respond to what voters have said? Because voters in Illinois overwhelmingly support legalizing marijuana. So even though those items are non-binding, what they can do is they can give elected officials an opportunity to voice, to essentially articulate the voice of the people. Mm -hmm. So we had a referendum a couple of years or a few years ago on an elected school board. And even though it's non-binding, it gives representatives an opportunity to say, well, 87% of constituents said that this is something that's important to them. Mm -hmm. They should be used as an information piece to push a certain agenda. So even if it's not binding about legalizing marijuana, this is now an issue that you can say the people have spoken and this is what they have said and then hopefully use that to draft legislation that reflects the will of the people. And let's go now to the property tax assessment piece. Uh, first, we, we've kind of we've we've talked about this in past episodes, but let's dig a little deeper because now we have an opportunity to, to, to talk about how it played out in unseating Joe Berrios. This was a perfect storm right, right on this particular issue. So we had a number of reports that came out earlier last year, in particular it was the Chicago Tribune and ProPublica. They had launched these investigative reports that showed that there was a disparity in the assessments, meaning that communities that are low income, which are also primarily primarily communities of color, where actually their homes are being over-assessed, mm. whereas in more affluent communities and neighborhoods, those homes are being under-assessed. So it is a systemic problem that is hurting predominantly low-income and predominantly uh, communities of color. This is not a new phenomenon. This has been happening for years, even prior to the current, uh, well, now former uh, Cook County Assessor. But the issue had never really been addressed, and it did not it wasn't a factor in the public um, public perception. So what happened is, first we had these reports that came out from the Tribune and ProPublica. That's educating the public. Mm. And property taxes are an issue that every homeowner is aware of because if you're paying taxes, oh, yeah. when you see that bill and you have to write that check, it's just it's not a fun thing. So it gets people respond viscerally when they realize that, oh, I'm actually being over-assessed. This is a problem. It's inequity. It's not fair. And so that created some enthusiasm. Then you had a challenger in Fritz Kage who was able to take advantage of that, someone who was very critical of the existing property tax system, who had an understanding of the inequity and spoke to the inequity and the unfairness and the need for transparency and to really change that system. So it, was, it, it really helped that... Uh, these reports that educated the public. Then you have a candidate that's also speaking on the issue. And you also had a gubernatorial candidate in Chris Kennedy who made the property tax, what he called the property tax racket, a central part of his campaign. And he focused on the fact that you have elected officials who also serve as property tax appeals lawyers. So they're actually financially benefiting from this inequitable system. And at every turn, Kennedy was calling out 
Berrios and Madigan and the system as a whole until that confluence of factors was the perfect storm for a challenger in Kagi to be able to come in and actually defeat the incumbent. Right. And for disclosure, you worked with Chris Kennedy on his yes. campaign. Yes. Uh, but it's interesting that that translated to voters in terms of them voting for Fritz Kagi and unseating Berrios. But Preckwinkle closely allied herself with uh, Berrios, yes. you know, and even now she's running for, uh, to be chair of the Democratic Party, uh, Cook County. Um, she aligned herself with him, still was able to win despite the pop tax, despite aligning herself with him and defending him. Um, how do we account for for that? How do we account for the way she was able to pull out? Was it just going against a candidate that wasn't as strong in Bob Fioretti or did voters get over the pop tax? <laughs> what, what was it? Well, so President Preckwinkle is, you know, she has the infrastructure. She is very strong within the Democratic Party, has been a leader for quite some time, and has that supported infrastructure. And so that's a formidable opponent, regardless of any vulnerabilities that existed. Now, she certainly was vulnerable because of the pop tax, but what happened is it was repealed. And so had it not been repealed, it might have still been a major factor in people's decision making, but mm. enough time had passed to where it wasn't quite as uh, strong of an issue as it may have been earlier on. Um, and part of it is also the quality of a challenger. And so her challenger was uh, former Alderman Bob Fioretti. Um, probably not the strongest challenger to unseat someone of her stature, especially with her ties to the Democratic Party and the support that she already had. And so I think that's why the, it, it wasn't successful. His attempt to unseat her wasn't successful. And she simply was able to consolidate her support and, and move forward. We talked a little bit about this, and even as we look at the Cook County Board President race, and pieces have been written about this by the uh, Chicago Sun-Times, the Tribune, about the political machine and how successful it was in this race. Bruised, but still came out on top. You know, the people Madigan supported uh, were able to win. Uh, explain this dynamic of the political machine in Illinois and Cook County, and what have you observed about how their influence has played out in this primary election? Well, uh, part of it is defining the machine. And so typically when we talk about the machine, it is the entrenched, within the context of the Democratic Party, is those entrenched interests, individuals who uh, we, we typically think of Speaker of the House Mike Madigan, who's been in office for decades and Speaker for decades, who has an incredible amount of power. And that power is wielded in support from uh, elected officials and in his ability to support candidates who are running for office. That is an ob objective. That's just the way that it is in the state. And so a lot of people who challenge the machine, they are challenging that entrenched power dynamic because the belief is that it prevents uh, change. Mm -hmm. A lot of things in the state of Illinois that we could change don't get changed if we are comfortable with the status quo. And so challenging the machine is really about challenging the status quo, getting new people in office, running new people for office with the hope that they come in with new ideas that can usher in some of the change that many communities haven't seen. And so in this election, it really played out where uh, you had challengers. You had someone like a Fritz Kagi who was challenging Joe Berrios, head of the Democratic, former, now former head of the Democratic Party in Cook County. You had on the Southwest side, which was really an example of what happens when people organize against the machine. You had uh, the Burke dynasty was, was uh, bruised, actually, when Aaron Ortiz, a 26-year-old school counselor, defeated uh, the, inc the incumbent for state rep. Um, you had uh, slates of candidates, Alma Anaya, 
who was is the new commissioner, was uh, won her race for the seventh uh, district in Cook County as a commissioner, and so they had a very intentional mechanism with which to challenge strategic seats that would allow them to assume power and, and garner more power. That is the goal. The goal is we have to run strategic candidates so that we can win certain seats. Now, you'll always run into the barrier of money or the, the challenge of raising money, mm -hmm. and that is undeniable. Um, in some of the key state rep races, for example, in the 5th District, you had a candidate who spent a million dollars in that race, and it's just hard to compete with that amount of money. And if it's a machine-supported candidate, then they also have all of the infrastructure that goes with that machine support. So challengers have to think about those kinds of obstacles when they're deciding that they want to challenge incumbents. What was really interesting was the, the race for commissioner between Richard Boykin and uh, Brandon Johnson, um, backed by the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, Brandon Johnson is, Richard Boykin, has been outspoken against Preckwinkle. I believe he voted against the, the, the pop tax. Yes. So how does how did endorsements play a part in that race? How did Brandon Johnson pull that well, one it was, out? It was, so it was a number of things. The, the interesting thing about that race is that Commissioner, former Commissioner Boykin was considering a run for Cook County Board President. And I always say that fortune favors the bold. And so he had considered it. He thought about it. This was at the height of her unpopularity because of the soda tax. And then he decided that he would actually just stay back and, and run again for his first district seat. Brandon Johnson came in with um, definitely an uphill battle, but he had a lot of institutional support, meaning he had the support of the unions. He had some established uh, elected officials supporting him. The alderman of the 28th Ward, Jason Irvin, supported him. He had uh, Senator Don Harmon supporting him. He also had boots on the ground. He had people organized who would knock on doors to get his message out. I think that what happened is it was unexpected how well he would do in the strong showing that he would put forth. And by the time Commissioner Boykin's team realized that this is a serious threat, it was far too late. And so they were en ended up sort of scrambling at the end. Hmm. That just goes to show that you might have money, but you also have to have boots on the ground. You have to have people knocking on doors. You have to have that kind of infrastructure if you're going to challenge an incumbent. But also for the incumbents, we can't underestimate the potential challenger. And I think Brandon was underestimated. And when we think about that race, why it's so interesting to me is because we're gearing up now for the primary, for the general elections in November. And in Illinois, especially in Chicago, the Democratic candidate usually becomes the, usually wins the office by the time November rolls around. And such is the case in that uh, commissioner's race because there isn't a Republican challenger. Right. Um, so what races should we be watching out for in the general election? And just talk about the importance of voting in those primary elections, because oftentimes you're voting for the office in the primary election when there's no Republican challenger, uh, specifically in Cook County. Yes. So I, just the point of voting in the primaries, that is incredibly important and cannot be emphasized enough. The primaries, in many instances, is the thing. Um, a lot of races unfortunately go unchallenged. So you have a lot of candidates that do not have primary challengers. And so they sort of just go on to the general. But for the, the races where incumbents have challenges and where there are actually people running, mm -hmm. that is where the biggest decision is made because in, in Illinois, especially in the Chicago area where it's pretty much democratic, 
you can't always say that you'll have a Republican that's also running in that particular race. Right. So the primaries are the most important, yet more of the attention gets paid to the general election. But without making it past the primaries, you can't get to the general right. election. So I always try to emphasize that the primaries are incredibly important. I think moving into the general at the state level, I would definitely keep an eye out for the attorney general's race. Um, that one, the victor on the Democratic side is Kwame Raul, who pulled out a win against a really good field. I mean, we had solid candidates, but he won. And then on the Republican side, Erica Harold, who is from downstate, she's an attorney. Uh, she is a, a black woman um, from central Illinois who has the support of the Republican Party. She defeated uh, her challenger in, in their primary, and so she will be going up against Kwame Raul. I think that's going to be an interesting race just because of the dynamics. They are both very qualified um, for the role, and I think it'll be interesting seeing seeing how this plays out statewide. Um, obviously, the gubernatorial election is going to be the big election. This is set to be, on record, the most expensive election in the country in nice. history. Uh, we had on the Democratic side, uh, J.B. Pritzker spent $70 million dollars, which I think amounts to about, when we broke down the numbers, maybe around $121 per vote. So that is really telling about the role of money in elections, but also about when you have another challenge, uh, another candidate in Bruce Rana, who's also uh, very wealthy and spent a significant amount of money getting out of his primary. This is going to be interesting to see what happens. I think it's telling that voter turnout was not astronomical even after spending $70 million. That tells you a lot about the enthusiasm for candidates. So the way that this plays out in November I think will be interesting to see if people actually come out or will they be sort of um, less interested because if it goes negative, the, the studies have shown that negative campaigning tends to drive down and depress voter turnout. And it's looking like, based upon what happened in the primary, this might, it might get a little muddy in the general. Mm. Well, we're about to roll our hands up, roll our <laughs> sleeves up and get into it, man. This is public policy uh, expert and consultant, also political consultant and community organizer, Amara Enya. Thank you for taking a seat at the table. I appreciate it. Thank uh, you. I think I'll be tapping on you pretty soon, too, as we get closer to these elections. Help, uh, us, yes. help us digest all of this. Of course. I'm happy to. Thank you for listening to a segment from our bi-weekly series, Dear Black Voter. We invite you to check out our show notes and voter resources at coldpodcast.com. And don't forget to rate us and leave your comments on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the League and to find out how you can get involved and support our work, please visit our website at thechicagourbanleague.org.